Welcome to Turning Point. If living for Christ doesn't get you as excited as it used to, you're overdue for some spiritual rejuvenation. Today, Dr. David Jeremiah begins a series to help you re-energize your Christian walk. Ten Steps to Spiritual Renewal. In Nehemiah, God revitalizes the passion of His people, and He can do it for you, too. Here's David to introduce his message, Getting Back to the Book. And thank you for joining us today. I want to ask you this question. What if you were given the task of rebuilding a stone wall around a ruined city, only to discover that the mortar holding the stones together had been improperly mixed, and the wall would crumble in short order, and the building would have been in vain? Well, in a very similar way, when Nehemiah returned from Persia to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls around the demolished city, he discovered a faulty part of the resources at hand. It was the faith of the Jewish remnant. The wall went up in short order, and the people were physically safe for the first time in decades, but their faith wasn't strong enough to take them into the future, and no wall is strong enough to protect a people whose faith in God is weak. So Nehemiah, along with Ezra, took on a second problem— Renewing the faith of the Jews in Jerusalem, and by walking the Jewish people through 10 steps to spiritual renewal, they were transformed from a faithless remnant into a faithful, restored nation. Wasn't easy, but that's why God called Nehemiah to do it. Over these next few weeks, we're going to go with the people of Israel on this journey to renewal. We'll take every step, we'll look at everything that the people of Israel were taught and will apply it to our own lives. This new series is called 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal. There's a study guide, there's some CDs, and our very special resource is the prayer code by O.S. Hawkins. I'll tell you more about that at the end of today's lesson, but I want us to get started. Today we go to the eighth chapter of Nehemiah and the first few verses, step number one, getting back to the book. Back in 1742, John Albert Bengel observed that Scripture is the foundation of the church, and the church is the guardian of Scripture. When the church is strong in health, the light of Scripture shines bright. When the church is sick, Scripture is corroded by neglect. And thus it happens that the outward form of Scripture and that of the church usually seem to exhibit simultaneously either health or sickness. And as a rule, the way in which the Scripture is being treated is in exact correspondence with the condition of the Church. After more than two centuries, we can affirm the validity of Bengal's warning. The Church and the Scripture stand together. Either the Church will be nourished and strengthened by the bold proclamation of the biblical text or her health will be severely impaired. It is no secret as you look around today that Christ's church is not at all in good health in many places of the world. She has been languishing because she has been fed, if I can use the term, with junk food. All kinds of artificial preservatives and all kinds of unnatural substitutes have been served up to the church. And as a result, theological and biblical malnutrition has afflicted the very generation that has taken such giant steps to make sure its physical health is not damaged by using foods or products that are carcinogenic or otherwise harmful to their physical bodies. 
simultaneously a worldwide spiritual famine resulting from the absence of any genuine publication of the Word of God continues to run wild and almost unabated in many quarters of the world that I know about. And we do not look around with great encouragement for the teaching ministry of the Word of God. Now, the sad fact is that spiritual renewal is inseparably linked to the Word of God. The great renewal during Nehemiah's day was engendered when all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate, and they spoke unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. Now, the reason for the centrality of the Word of God in revival ought to be very obvious to all of us. The terrible conditions that we face in our world are the result of the neglect of this book. And it is only as this book is restored to the lives of the people that revival can ever start. Through the first seven chapters of the book of Nehemiah, the people are busy building a wall. They are reconstructing the broken down walls of the city. But building the wall or finishing the building project will not deal with the problem that is in their hearts. The problem that is in their hearts is that they are spiritually far from God. And the only answer to the recovery and renewal of that relationship is found in the Word of God itself. A man who has studied revival and written about it a great deal has written these words. He said, let us remember that all the mischief, all the corruption and confusion, all the shame and dishonor, all the reproach and blasphemy had its origin in the neglect of the Word of God. It has ever been the special design of Satan to lead God's people away from Scripture. He will use anything and everything for this end, tradition, the church, so-called expediency, human reason, popular opinion, reputation and influence, character, position, all those he will use in order to get the heart and conscience away from the one golden sentence, that divine motto, it is written, end of quote. I shall never forget a conference I attended several years ago when one of the professors, Dr. John Whitcomb, that I had studied under at Grace Seminary, was asked to speak. And in a historical review, he said something like this. He said, in the generations before ours, liberalism, with all of its insidious arguments and its decimation of the Word of God and its integrity, liberalism sought to take the Word of God away from us. And it was not able to do so because there were giants who stood up in defense of the Word of God and demonstrated that God's Word was indeed spirit-controlled, spirit-empowered, inspired of God. But he said, you should never undersell Satan. If he could not take the Word of God from us, he would come back and in his second attempt try to take us from the Word of God. And he said that in his opinion what had happened in our modern culture is through experience-centered religion, through the continual advent of emotionalism, God's Word has been set aside. So Satan couldn't take God's Word from us. He has succeeded in taking many people from God's Word. I'll never forget talking to a young woman 
who came to see me one day about some confusion she had in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And I said, well, why don't we just look at what God has to say in his word? Oh, she said, Pastor, I'm not interested in that. I did that for a long time. I want to talk to you about my experience and what that has meant to me. My friend, whenever you replace God's word with anything, you have moved away from God's purpose in your life. And when God has given to us his written word to guide our lives, we must never forget that the centrality of the word of God in spiritual renewal is absolutely essential. Now, the words of the prophet Amos aptly describe what is going on in our land today. Let me read to you Amos 8, 11, and 12. Listen carefully. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. And they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and they shall not find it. In my estimation, much of that prophecy is being fulfilled in our generation. Good Christian people, people that I know and appreciate, who have come to this church and are now moved away and living in other places, have come back to say, you know, Pastor, we can't find a church in our community where they teach the word of God. One man that I met with not long ago told me that he went to a certain church and he said, I don't even take my Bible anymore. He said, there's no use. They never teach the scriptures. And he said, we have about a 20-minute little thing in the morning where the Bible is roughly mentioned several times, but I come away so empty because there's no teaching of God's word. And I do not say these things to in any way try to put down any other ministry that we might climb up on the platform of what we have done to them to elevate ourselves. We are not in any way doing all that we could do to teach the Word of God. But men and women, that is our commitment, and that is what this church is all about. It seems as we look out at our world today, we have all-night sings and gospel entertainment and puppet shows, carefully choreographed specials and multimedia extravagance and forums and expos and seminars and films and dialogues. But there doesn't seem to be a lot of preaching going on. And I'm convinced that any church that will honor the Word of God and teach its truth, there will be a hearing for God's Word. Now, the book we're studying is a book that's all about the reconstruction of the walls. And up and through the seventh chapter, we have things that are connected to that. In chapters 1 through 7, there's a special person who is in the limelight. That's Nehemiah. When you get to chapter 8, there's another person who takes center stage. That's Ezra. Nehemiah was the builder. Ezra was the priest. And all of a sudden, without any fanfare or introduction, Ezra is going to take center stage. At the close of chapter 7, the people are back in their cities. They are dwelling in their houses, but there is something very wrong. The worship of God and the reading of his word is in decline. Quite often I've heard pastors say, you know, we thought when we built this building that was going to take care of all our problems. We got the building up and we needed a revival. I don't know anything that will test your spirituality like a building program. Lots of churches need revival after they get their building built. And that's the way it was for Nehemiah. The people were back in their walled city, but there was something very wrong in their hearts. So Ezra comes on the scene in Nehemiah's place. It's interesting to note that Ezra has been there 13 years already. But you don't read anything about him at all in the first part of the book. He's just been waiting till the proper time, till the motivation of the people is correct. And now he is going to come to the front in the lives of the people. 
in Jerusalem. Now the Bible tells us many things about this particular moment in the life of this nation. It tells us how they got themselves ready and what their attitude was. And here is an example for all of us, how we come to the teaching of the Word of God. I've mentioned to you once before that on occasion we misunderstand the process. I had a woman come to me at another church and, and as she left, she said to me the first time through the line, Pastor, you're preaching better than ever before. Well, I thought that's pretty good. That felt good. I didn't think I was doing anything different I'd ever did. She got back in line. I thought, well, I'm going to get this twice on the same day. This is all right. She came back through the line. She said, you know, I want to correct myself. I've been listening better than ever before. Hmm. You know, well, how we listen to the Word of God, what attitude we have when we come is altogether critical. Before I talk to you about how Ezra dealt with the Word of God, I want to show you how these people came to hear the Word of God. Notice the descriptive phrases that tell us about them. In verse 1, we are told that all the people came. All the people in the whole city came. They were unified around their desire to hear God's Word. Verse 2 says, the men and the women. And verse 4 tells us that along with all the people, the men and the women, they want to make sure we include the fact that the leaders were there too. And then it says later on that all who could understand were there. All the children who could get the sense out of what was going on, they were there. I'm not sure that we always do right by the compartmentalization of our families so that our children, and a lot of times our young people, are never in the teaching ministry of the Word of God. Well, in that day, every single person who was in the community, they could understand. They were all there. You could see them as families gathered, and they came together as one. Now, they had a tremendous attitude as they came to hear the Word of God. First of all, it's interesting to note that they're the ones who initiated the service. They're the ones who asked for Ezra to come. It says in verse 1 that they gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe, bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. I mean, I can't imagine the congregation calling the meeting. That happens on the mission field. I promise you that. You go to Romania, they'll stay up all day and all night to hear you preach, and when you're done and dead tired, they'll ask you if you can't go for a little bit longer. That's the way it was in Ecuador. If there's a hunger on the mission field where the Word of God isn't available that we don't have in our culture, these people were hungry. They came. They said, get the book, Ezra. Bring the book. We want to hear it. I'll tell you something. Your attitude when you come to the teaching of the Word of God is all important. How badly do you want to hear it? And the Scripture says they were there as one man. What that means is they were unified. They were committed as one body to the importance and centrality of God's Word. And then notice in verse 3, he read from the open square that was in the water gate from morning until midday before the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They stood in attention. They were hanging on every word. In fact, verse 5 says, and Ezra opened the book in sight of all the people. He was standing above all the people and when he opened it, all the people stood up and you show me where they sat down. They never did. He stood up at the beginning of the service, began to read the book, and the people were all standing, and they stood for three hours. Can you imagine what it must be like to stand up in front of a group of folks that are so hungry like that? So 
they ask for the Word of God, they come together as one man, they don't mind being there for three hours, they stand up for the whole service, and the Bible says they give attention to what is being said. Now, I just want to stop for a moment and say your spirit and your attitude as you come to church is the secret to what you get out of it. I love to see people taking notes. That means they're grabbing hold of what's being said, trying to write it down. If you don't come with the right attitude, no matter how good the preacher might be, he can't help you. If you come with the right attitude, no matter how bad he is, you can still gain some benefit. I remember when I was in seminary and we were visiting churches and sometimes we would get discouraged. I don't know how to say this, but seminarians understand it. Seminary ruins a lot of preachers for you. You you go to seminary and you sit there and you study all this time and you're doing exegesis. And sometimes you go to churches where maybe they don't do their homework right or whatever, and maybe they haven't studied, and you sit there, and if you're not careful, you get real academic in the way you listen, and you go home, and your, your heart's cold. I remember one time during our seminary career that Don and I got together, and we realized there's something that you can get excited about in every single service if you come with the right spirit. No matter what they're talking about, no matter how good or bad it may be said, if your attitude is right, you're going to be blessed and encouraged. Sometimes we lay too much on the preacher. Preacher can only do so much. It's your spirit and your attitude. You know, we used to have in our culture a thing that Saturday night was a time of preparation. You know, you kind of got yourself together, and you try to get your heart right, and you try to put the cares of the world aside, and there was that little window between the cares of the world. Now we go to gymnasiums and scream our lungs off and get mad at the referees, and it takes us all night to recover so we can come to church the next day. I know all about that. But you know, somehow, getting up early in the morning, getting your heart ready, coming to church, praying before you come, God, I I need to hear from you today. Help me to put the things out of my mind that would keep me from understanding. I want desperately to hear from God today. You come with that spirit, and I promise you, God will meet your need. Now, that's your part in this whole process. Let's read on in verses 4 through 8, and notice how the Word of God is presented. In verse 4, we're told that Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for that purpose. Now, actually, some translations say he stood on the pulpit. That always has given me quite an interesting vision in my mind. I guess you would get attention if you did that. But in the Old Testament, the pulpit is what I'm standing on, not what I'm standing behind. And there were so many people that needed to hear the word of God that they constructed a platform and elevated Ezra above them so that when he read, they could all see him and they could all hear him. So he presented that from the pulpit. That's the only place in the Bible where the word pulpit is found. Now, the Bible says that he presented God's word from the pulpit. And then I want you to note that he did it in the sight of all the people They did not have Bibles as we had today. Ezra didn't get up and say, all right, now everybody take your Schofield Bibles and turn to the Old Testament. I mean, they had no copies of the Scripture. They had one copy. Ezra had it. They had to listen to him read it. And they listened as the scribe read to them from the book. He was above all the people, and we opened the book. They stood up to acknowledge it. Notice, he read to them in a certain way. Watch carefully. It says that he read to them so they could see. He read to them so they could hear, and he read to them distinctly. Now, that's a very important thing for us to do when we read the Word of God. He read it so they could see him, so they could hear it, and so distinctly that they could understand what he was saying. Now, verse 8 is 
the most important verse in the entire text because it tells us the process that Ezra went through in the teaching of the Word of God. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Now, my understanding of this passage is that Ezra opened the book and he would read, and he would read a few lines, and then he would stop and make interpretive comments. I was interested to read this week that Charles Haddon Spurgeon, when he was pastoring in London, was noted for his remarks and interpretations during the Scripture reading. He preached really two messages often, they said. He would come in the first part of the service and stand to read the Scripture, and as he was reading it, he would stop every once in a while and make interpretive comments. And some folks said that an explanatory comment on the passage often transformed the whole service so that in the reading of the Scripture and then in the explaining of some term, Spurgeon would launch out into a mini-sermon that would prepare the hearts of the people for the message he would give on that text when he came to it at a later time. Sometimes we forget that we can do that. We can stop along the way and say a word. Back in the Middle Ages when the Bible was unobtainable by the people, there was the chained Bible in the parish churches of England. And there by a pillar one would read while others listened. Now we have so many copies of the Bible and it's so commonplace to us, we've lost the sense of the dignity of the reading of the Word of God. And it's almost impossible to read in unison. We try it every once in a while, but it's really an experience because we have so many different translations that are brought to church. In Nehemiah's day, when Ezra led in the teaching of the Word of God, he stood and he read the Word and he distinctly interpreted it. Now notice what he did. He gave the sense. What is a preacher supposed to do? He's supposed to give the sense of the text. I don't know if you've noticed it, but quite often when I pray before I preach, I pray three things. These things are in my heart when I preach. Number one, God help us to see what it says. Number two, God help us to see what it means. And number three, God help us to understand what it means to us. Observation is seeing what it says. Interpretation is understanding what it means. Application is understanding what it means to us. And all of those things are important. They build on each other. Interestingly enough, when we created the Jeremiah Study Bible, those were the main uh, building blocks of that project. What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to you? We'll have more about this from the book of Nehemiah and this first building block, this first step up toward renewal, getting back to the book. We'll finish this up tomorrow. Thursday and Friday, we're going to talk about getting serious about obedience. These are things we need to mark down in our list as we prepare for a new year, as we prepare for the rest of our life. And by the way, friends, if you haven't already done so, um, make sure you send a gift to Turning Point during the month of January so you can get a copy of this beautiful new prayer code. Um, this just came off the press. This book hasn't been out for very long. You heard me talk with O.S. Hawkins about it. But uh, every time you open this book to the next section, you find something about prayer that is not meant to cause you to feel guilty for not praying like you should, but to motivate you to pray. 
I hope you will take advantage of this resource. You know, as a pastor and as a radio pastor, there are some things I really hope that the people who listen to me end up with in their homes. Some of the books I've written, of course, I feel that way about those or I wouldn't have written them. But when we bring resources to Turning Point, we try to find resources that we know are affirming, that add value to our listeners, and that will have a long shelf life. I promise you the prayer code fits all of those. 40 scripture prayers every believer should pray. If you struggle with your prayer life, if you feel a little bit discouraged about your prayer life, going into this new year, I can't think of anything that will jumpstart you into the new year in the area of prayer like The Prayer Code by O.S. Hawkins. It's yours for the asking when you send a gift to Turning Point today. I hope you'll do it. I want to send this book to you. Ask for it when you send your gift. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal, please visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of O.S. Hawkins' latest book, The Prayer Code, 40 Scripture Prayers Every Believer Should Pray. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions, available in several durable and stylish cover options. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal, here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. In all we do each day, Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point work to make a global impact for the kingdom of God. But we can't do it alone. That's where Bible Strong Partners come in. These loyal monthly supporters form the foundation of Turning Point, allowing Dr. Jeremiah to teach the whole counsel of God. Partnering with Turning Point enables you to share in the eternal impact of this ministry, leading people to Christ through our media and printed resources, multiplying Bible teaching broadcasts, presenting the gospel around the globe, and strengthening the saints. In appreciation for your partnership, Turning Point wants to provide you with exclusive monthly resources and study guides, member-only communications, an on-demand library of study content, and so much more. Are you ready to see what the Lord will do? Let's expect to change the world together. Go to davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong to become a BibleStrong partner today. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong. If you enjoy listening to Turning Point with David Jeremiah, you'll be happy to hear that there is now a daily Turning Point television broadcast that you can watch each weekday. Tune in to Faith TV, Joy TV, or Miracle Channel Monday through Friday to watch the Turning Point daily television broadcast. Be sure to check your local listings for the channel and time in your area. Or visit davidjeremiah.ca forward slash TV to download a program schedule or watch at your convenience. That website again is davidjeremiah.ca forward slash TV. John D. Rockefeller Sr. was once the world's wealthiest person. But do you know what he valued most? Listen to his words. The ability to deal with people is as purchasable a commodity as sugar or coffee, and I pay more for that ability than for any other under the sun. 
He meant that he paid a lot to consultants and others who could teach him how to deal with people. Fortunately, we can learn the same valuable lessons just by reading the New Testament. The phrase, one another, occurs nearly 60 times in the Apostles' letters where they give instructions on how to treat others. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's people skills on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.